0: Welcome to The Dog Show with Julie Forbes. You're listening to Alternative Talk AM 1150. And have a great show today, uh, interview with Dr. Clive Wynn, who is one of the featured presenters at the SPARKS conference, which is coming up uh, just in a couple weeks now, uh, the Society for the Promotion of Applied Research in Canine Science. That's what SPARKS stands for. And it's a three-day conference that's in Redmond, Washington, just in Seattle's backyard. And uh, uh, really, really looking forward to this. We've had a few guests on the show. And uh, Dr. Wynn is one of the presenters um, in, this, uh, in this amazing conference. So I'm going to welcome Dr. Clive Wynn to The Dog Show. Thanks so much for your time today. Can't wait to talk Hi. to you about the work that you do. So first of all, will you tell us a little bit about um, where you work and sort of who you are?
1: Right, so hi, well thank you for inviting me on, Julie. Uh, yeah, I'm a professor of psychology at the University of Florida and I direct the Canine Cognition and Behavior Lab, which is me and a bunch of graduate students. And, and we've, for some years now, been studying a, quite a diverse set of questions relating to the behavior and cognition of dogs and their wild relatives. I'm very fortunate to be associated with Wolf Park in Indiana, mm-hmm. and they let me study the behavior of the hand-reared wolves that they have out there. And that makes a really interesting contrast and context for the work that we do with dogs.
0: Mm. Now, you you focus on uh, how dogs think, how wolves think, and specifically how dogs come to understand people and how right. that may be similar or different from how wolves may be able to understand people.
1: Right. So I'm not the first person to take an interest in these questions. Uh, Adam McClosey is one of the originators of this field and he's going to be at the Spark conference as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, so Adam and others in this field felt that they had found that there were important differences in the way that dogs relate to people and the way that wolves relate to people. Of course, here we're talking about hand-reared wolves, not uh, wild wolves out in the woods who don't relate to people at all. Uh, And so so when I came into this, I thought this was interesting uh, and started testing dogs and wolves for myself. And I've actually come to a rather different position than Adam's. Uh, in that I don't actually believe that there are important differences in the minds of dogs and wolves. Now, I'm not for a moment saying that I don't see the difference between dogs and wolves. There are great big differences between dogs and wolves. Of course there are. But when it comes to the question, if you take a dog that's been reared in a human household and you ask, can it, for example, understand that if somebody's pointing at something, that it could be worth that dog's while to go where you point? and if you compare that to the behavior of a wolf that's also had the opportunity to be reared uh, alongside human beings uh i think if you if you take a dog and a wolf that have been reared under closely similar conditions you will find that their ability to follow what people are doing is very very similar mm-hmm. that in other words the what i call the cognitive toolkit the minds of dogs and wolves are actually uh I have not found any significant differences between them.
0: And this is in being measured in several specific ways, like how they are distinguishing, you know, just certain gestures, certain cues from human beings. So this argument is based on several very specific things that you are measuring.
1: Right. So, you know, I mean, the, the scientist takes, every day and cuts it into tiny little slices and so the most common little slice the one that anybody can do at home who has a dog at home is you just stand between two cups or buckets or two objects and you point at one of them or the other one and you see if your dog goes where you point point. and most not all most dogs will go where you point so that's been the single test that's been most commonly tried on dogs and on wolves, and we've also tried it on coyotes and uh, foxes. And uh, typically, of course, dogs do it and wild canids don't do it. But then, of course, the vast majority of wild canids don't have that same level of opportunity. They don't get to hang around with people and learn what human gestures can mean. Mm Mm-hmm. So, uh, but when we've tested at Wolf Park, we've tested uh, hand reared wolves and and foxes and coyotes, and we find that if they have been effectively hand reared then then they can they can quite readily follow people's pointing gestures. So the pointing gesture is the most common one. The other one that I enjoyed doing was where we gave the animals a choice of two people. one of these people could see the animal, the other one could not see the animal, and so one person was made unable to see the, the animal in several different ways. Uh, the most amusing being making people put a bucket on their head. Mm-hmm. So we had an experiment, and we have two people lined up. One holds onto a bucket, just in case the animals might be perhaps a little afraid of the bucket. Right. One of them's holding onto a bucket, but the other one has the bucket all over her head so that she cannot see the animal. Mm-hmm. And we let the animal go. And we see which person does the animal prefer to go to and beg from. So I forgot to mention that we first make sure that the animal knows that both of these people are actually holding on to some treats that the animal might like. Mm -hmm. And there we find that actually dogs are no good at this and wolves are no good at it either. So um, uh, the the overall message is that the cognitive skills, the minds, of dogs and of wild canids, wolves, and so on, it can be really quite strikingly similar.
0: Mm. So it sounds like the biggest impact, according to your findings, is is the question of whether the wolf or the dog was hand-reared by a human from puppyhood, not necessarily taking into account the process of domestication.
1: So the process of domestication makes a difference. It makes a lot of big difference. I mean, after all, many people listening to this have a dog at home. Right. Very few have a wolf at home. Right. And there's a really good reason for that. Right. A wolf is a big, bad, dangerous, scary animal. Uh, so I, I've made friends with some wolves. Um, so I'm, you know, I'm saying that with my tongue in cheek because you can make friends with a wolf. You can hand rear a wolf, and it can be uh... it can it can have a relationship with human beings a positive relationship but by and large wolves are predators that live out in the woods and there's a reason for that there's a reason why we make dogs our pets and not wolves and that reason is that during domestication changes took place in the timing of development so that the wolf like any wild animal goes through its childhood very, very quickly. If you live out in the wild, you cannot afford to spend months learning how to walk, learning how to hunt. Um, And the crucial thing is you cannot afford to spend months figuring out what kinds of beings it's okay to be friends with. Mm. The old Austrian ethologist, Conrad Lorenz, he was the one who discovered for us that every being, every animal is born not knowing what kinds of other animals it's okay to make friends with. We were not born knowing that we belong with human beings. Dogs were not born knowing they were dogs, and that goes on throughout the animal kingdom. And in wild animals, the window of opportunity What's called the critical period for social imprinting, the window of opportunity for a wild animal to learn, to look around itself and say, well, okay, I can see I'm surrounded by beings like this. In the rest of my life, I will only make friends with beings like this. That window of opportunity in wild animals is very brief. And that makes very good sense because you cannot afford to let that question stay open for Mm. long if you live out in the wild. Right. So the wolf, looks, the wolf pup looks around itself for just a couple of weeks mm. before it makes up its mind what kind of beings it's going to accept as members of its own species. And everything else is going to be fair game to hunt.
0: So is that based off of just simply the the other um, animals that they're exposed to and not necessarily some sort of negative experience? I mean, they're not going out as weak old puppies, puppies, uh, finding out the hard way that they shouldn't interact with this animal or this animal. It's more a function of who they are exposed with rather than negative, right?
1: Exactly. It's entirely a simple form of exposure learning. I mean, at that age, a negative experience, they're going to be dead.
0: Right.
2: You know,
1: a one or two week old puppy has no way of defending itself. Right. There's no learning through experience in in this situation. Simply the animal, as its nose opens, its ears open, its eyes open, it, uh, it detects what kinds of beings are around it. And in nature, that inevitably just means its mother and its siblings and, its, and it, the rest of its family in the den. Uh, and then that's over in a couple of weeks.
2: Mm-hmm. Now,
1: in the dog, you get development tremendously slowed down. And dogs are still open to learn about who they might be able to have relationships with for the first time. Several months of life. It varies between individuals. It varies between breeds. But if it's let's if it's fair to say it's two or three weeks in wolves, it would be very reasonable to say it's two or three months in dogs. And I, I wonder sometimes. My own dog seems to be very gradually coming to accept a cat. And she was over a year old when we got her. So it's it's something that's greatly slowed down a period of development that's greatly slowed down in the dog and the consequence of that is that any any fool can tame a dog it's so easy to tame dogs that to actually put those two words together tame a dog i guess the three words (laughs) sounds silly to most people because most people you don't think about the fact that you don't tame a dog dogs come to you tame but they do have to be tamed if, you were to, if we were to go out to the woods around Chernobyl in um, the old Soviet Union
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, and we were to track down dogs that had no exposure to human beings for the first several months of life, those dogs would be wild animals. And the fact that they are descended from thousands of generations of domesticated dogs would not change the fact that to all extents and purposes, They would be wild animals. We would have a lot of difficulty getting anywhere near them. Mm. And meanwhile, with the wolves, it's extremely difficult to tame a wolf. I don't recommend that anybody try it. I was very fortunate to come across an establishment in Indiana, Wolf Park, where they have been practicing this since 1972. And by their own admission, it took them five to ten years to figure out how to get it right. But they have now got it right. And they go to great effort to raise these walls so that they really do accept people as social companions. And if that acceptance is there, then the cognitive skills to understand what people are up to reveal themselves too.
0: Mm. Well, it's all—it's so interesting. Uh, we're going to take a quick break here. Um, uh, just su- such an such interesting work, all of it. I can't wait for this um, conference coming up at the end of June. Just a couple weeks here. Uh, Dr. Clive Wynn is is one of the presenters, uh, one of the many brilliant minds who will be sharing ideas and experience with uh, people who are attending. People are coming from all over the world, and you can still register. The website is caninescience.info if you'd like to find out more about this conference. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be back with more with Dr. Clive Wynn. You're listening to The Dog Show with Julie Forbes on Alternative Talk 1150.
2: wild pack family dogs came running through the yard. One day my father got us gone. Shot it up, they ran away, okay.
3: Wild-
4: Wish your dog didn't hate going to the vet. Wish you were welcomed by a team who cared. Jet City Animal Clinic is an enjoyable respite from the same old thing. Dr. Anderson and her team have created a full-service facility that combines veterinary expertise with a comfortable style. Jet City Animal Clinic is located in Seattle's Capitol Hill neighborhood on 12th Avenue across from Seattle U. Bring your crazy questions, odd ideas, and alternative thinking. Jet City Animal Clinic will work with you to keep your furry family members healthy and happy. Traditionally educated with an open mind, Call us at 206-329-0253 or email info at jetcityanimalclinic.com to make an appointment. Jet City Animal Clinic, a unique approach to the health care of your urban pet, a local family practice. Jet City JetCityAnimalClinic.com.
2: This is Martha Norwalk. Every Sunday morning, beginning at 9 a.m. Thanks in part to Anti Icky Poo, the best odor neutralizer for cat urine ever. We cover the world of living successfully with your animal friends. This week, June 23rd, it's a behavior training and healing Sunday with me. I'll have open phone lines for your calls and questions, plus more talk about the huge upcoming canine science conference happening soon in Redmond. Find out how you can attend in person or watch it at home for free. Martha Norwalk's Animal World Sunday morning. 9 a.m. to noon, right here on Alternative Talk. Coming the
3: weekend of June 28th through the 30th, it's the Society for Promotion of Applied Research and Canine Science Conference.
0: It's amazing. So amazing. This incredible conference coming up locally in Redmond, end of June. I'm just blown away by all of these people who are going to be here Mark Beckhoff, Michael Fox, Clive Wynn, Adam McCloshy, Ray Coppinger, Alexander Horowitz, etc. These incredible authors and scientists are all coming together in redmond and we have the opportunity to go and participate in this caninescience.info i'll post a link to that on our homepage, page dogradioshow.com this is a really like maybe not once in a lifetime but the first opportunity in this area ever so super exciting
3: go to caninescience.info for more information and to register now camley electric incorporated is a full service electrical contractor From simple home repairs to full remodels, new construction and small commercial projects, our qualified electricians do it all. We pride ourselves on our workmanship and professional standards, delivered with value in mind. Located in historic Ballard, Kemley Electric serves the greater Seattle metropolitan area. Licensed, bonded and insured. Kemley Electric welcomes all inquiries about your electrical needs. Visit the website, KemleyElectric.com. That's K-E-M-L-Y Electric.com. No other station brings you this much variety. Welcome to Alternative Talk,
0: 1150
3: AM. my own dog ran away I didn't say much of anything at all.
0: Welcome back to The Dog Show with Julie Forbes, and we're back with Dr. Clive Wynn. Um, talking about uh, how dogs think, how wolves think, and the similarities and differences between the two, among other things. Welcome back, Dr. Wynn. Hi. So uh, I've posted a link to your website from our homepage, which is dogradioshow.com. So you can find link to uh, the works of Dr. Wynn and also to the Sparks Conference, Science.info from our homepage, Uh, but I'll give you uh, Dr. Clive Wynn's website is simply w y n n e dot com, And uh, you've just got so much information. I was reading through your publications and your research papers, and there is so much. And we actually, I think, addressed uh, a lot of it very simply in this first segment. And if you've missed any part of this interview... You can find it in all of our over 200 episodes archived on iTunes as a free audio podcast and also from our website, dogradioshow.com. So we're talking about the studies that you did um, in the first segment, and I I wanted to make sure that we talk about your experience with, um, now how do you pronounce them? It was in Nicaragua that you traveled?
1: Right, the Mayangna people.
0: Right. And there you observe their relationship with dogs and um, seems that it is likely similar to sort of the ancestral relationship or or the earlier relationship between people and dogs, where they're actually really hunting with the dogs and and still doing things with the dogs. That uh, seems to be one of the ways that our relationship originated. Right,
1: Julie. Well, so... I'm supposed to be writing a book about the origin of dogs, and one of the one of the best established ideas about how dogs came into being is that people uh, found that they could adopt wolf pups and that the wolf pups would help them when they were hunting. And uh, hunting hunting with dogs, as people around here in North Florida do it, or people back in England in my homeland, do it, it's a pretty complex operation. You know, there's a lot to it. And I thought it would be interesting to better understand how people who mm. who hunt and, and live in a way which hasn't changed for thousands of years, that it would be useful to me to see how those people hunt. Mm. And so I came across the work of a wonderful anthropologist, Jeremy Costner, at um, uh, Cincinnati University, University of Cincinnati. And I actually met with him, because uh, I happened to be in Cincinnati and we had dinner. And he was telling me all about it. And he said, well, look, I'm going back there in January. Why don't you come with? And out of my sort of naivety, I I thought, well, why not? You know, I mean, it didn't sound that difficult to get there. It's a Nicaragua, um, um, Managua, the capital of Nicaragua is a direct flight from Miami. So it's not a big deal. So I go out there and I tell people that if I'd known how tough it was going to be, I never would have gone. And on the other hand, I'm just so glad that I went because it was absolutely the trip of a lifetime. I don't have the time to tell you everything about it. Apart from the flight to Managua, which is sure enough pretty easy, and then a day in a truck going across dirt roads to get to this river, the Cocoa River. It was then two days in a dugout canoe through rapids to get to the, the village where these people live. And the, the final, the last half a day going up this small river into their territory, it was like stepping into Jurassic Park. I mm-hmm. mean, it was just like nothing I have ever experienced in my life. All the people, when they heard the motor or the outboard motor of the powered canoe, everybody in the, in the, uh, homes along the sides of the river come to the water's edge and wave because it's so exciting for them to see anybody from outside. Right. It was just absolutely amazing. And um, they took me hunting with them and it was very, very interesting. The hunt is really, it's not that different from going for a walk with your dog in the woods and letting your dog off-leach. They just let the dogs run around in the woods and the dogs perfectly naturally chase after prey that are in the woods. They've got small deer, they've got sort of little pig-like animals, they've got rabbit-like animals. The dogs quite naturally chase after them, but the dogs don't have the strength in their jaw to actually complete the kill. So the dog, I mean, this is just, I remember when I was a kid in England, maybe I shouldn't admit this on the radio, but when I was a kid in England, we used to just let our dog off leech in the woods. And the dog would chase after and bother the animals of the woods, but it never caught anything because, well, it's just not powerful enough.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: So it's sort of like that. And the, the men, it's only the men go hunting. The men run after their dog, trying to follow its barks. They think they can tell from how the dog barks whether it's caught something or even exactly what it's caught. Because what they're hoping for and what commonly happens is that the dogs can run the prey to ground and the prey takes shelter in a hollowed out log or perhaps in an underground burrow, but the dogs can't finish the deal. And so the men and boys run after the dogs with their machetes and they catch up with the dog and hopefully the prey and they sharpen sticks to kind of make sure that the prey is trapped and then they kill the prey either with the sharp stick or with the machete itself and they bring home the meat, and it really works. It really works. And uh, the dogs are very small and scrawny, but an average dog brings home each month twice its own body weight in captured meat. So, yes, the dog really works. It's actually quite wonderful to watch, and it pays off.
0: It's a good reason to not eat the dogs, isn't it?
1: Well, and that's right. (laughs) These people have no cultural tradition of eating the dogs, And that's a good reason not to eat them. Although it has to be said that if the average is that each dog brings home twice its body weight each month, the variation is immense. Mm. Some dogs can bring home 100 pounds a month and some dogs bring home nothing. And there is a bit of a question as to, well, why not eat those dogs that don't bring home anything? Um, But anyway, they have their traditions just like we do. They don't consider dog to be an edible animal.
0: What kinds of dogs... What kinds yeah. of dogs did these look to be? I mean, you said that they were sort of light, you know, fast. I assume. Did they um, look to be of any sort of a breed group or or anything like that?
1: Only in so far as you would say that they were they were hounds. They're small hounds. I, I I'm not very good at spotting breeds, and uh, they're short haired. They're light colored, fawn colored, sometimes black, perhaps black patches. Um, they don't They don't look, I mean, if you wanted to, if somebody wanted to, they could make a breed out of them, call them the Mayungna dog,
0: right.
1: but um, but they don't look to be.
0: And you have but some photos the of them. Page. You have some photos of these guys I, on your yeah. site. Yeah. Yeah. I can see the houndry. Yeah.
1: Do I have them on my website? I, I try and update the photos on my website to always relate to my most recent adventure i don't remember now do i have
0: you do you have a um one of the links to the miagna people and their dogs oh that's right there we go
1: there we go oh there's a few there yeah so people can see and make their own minds up but really they're just small agile uh dogs they they're too small to be considered plausible guard dogs uh they're pretty fast um but I, must tell, I, must, I mustn't leave the story where we stopped for a moment because there's a twist which is really important. Yes. And so the dogs do help the hunters, but where does the energy come from that powers the dog? Right. If, if I was somebody who hunted with dogs here in north central Florida, I would buy dog food or whatever I want to right. to help power the dogs. You cannot power the dogs with the catch of the hunt or there'd be nothing left for you to eat because dogs have higher metabolic rates than people. For each pound of dog weight, you need more calories to power it than the same weight of human.
2: Mm.
1: So there wouldn't be, the hunt wouldn't be any use to the people if they fed the dogs the meat that they catch. So instead, the Mayangna people are not simply hunter-gatherers. They also have gardens. They grow bananas. They grow manioc. They actually have a surplus of starchy calories, boring starchy calories. That's what they feed to the dogs. That's what powers the dogs and makes hunting with dogs possible. And I've been doing some reading on hunters who hunt with dogs in other parts of the world, in Central Africa, in Northeast Africa. And wherever you find hunters hunting with dogs, there is agriculture powering those dogs. Mm. So although dogs can be useful to hunters, definitely can be useful to hunters, you cannot hunt with dogs if you are simply a hunter gatherer. You have to have surplus calories from agriculture. Surplus boring starchy agriculture calories that you can feed to the dog to power the dog. And so the dog is not is not creating energy for you. The dog is actually a catalyst that converts boring starchy calories from agriculture into sexy meat protein calories. Mm-hmm. And I, I I use the term sexy, on the advice of a scientist, because my anthropologist friend who took me out there, being an anthropologist, he's actually done things like ask every woman in the community, which of the men in the community would you most like to have for a husband? Mm
2: -hmm. And
1: it turns out that the number one predictor of a man's attractiveness to the women as a potential husband is his ability and that of his dogs to bring home meat.
2: (laughs) <laughs> so
1: these people are eating about an ounce of meat a day. They're getting mm-hmm. about an ounce of protein a day, only just enough yeah. to avoid malnutrition. Yeah, And that means that the hunt is enormously important. But yeah. it's not the dogs. You couldn't be doing this without agriculture to power the dogs.
0: Right. And, and it brings up something that um, is, seems to be a current uh, focus of nutrigenomics, which I talked with Dr. Michael Fox about a little bit, and we'll talk with Dr. Jean Dodds about as well when her book comes out about it, but about dogs and their individual um, abilities to, uh, you know, digest and use starches and grains versus not. And, um, And also to your point, the food that these dogs are eating is fresh food. And not, uh, you know, some sort of starch or grain, um, a gluten meal or something like that from overseas. But these are actually th- these are actually foods that the Magna people are growing in in their own property. Did you see? Well, that the-
1: yeah. Although although the only the only food I ever saw dogs there eat was kitchen scraps, leftovers mm. of human meals, mainly rice. Interesting. The, pe- the people are eating mainly rice. Now rice doesn't have any gluten in it, right, but they're eating mainly rice uh, that has been cooked and served to human beings and uh yeah you can have too much rice so
0: <laughs> do you think so that they um do you think that the dogs are doing some little side hunting like for rodents and stuff like that on their own to supplement um no or bugs
1: I doubt it, hmm. I doubt it they are i mean uh you ought to get Jeremy Coster on because he's the True expert on this. Uh, he's studied all of these questions and he's even taken hair samples from the dogs and have them analyzed to see what makes up the dog's diet. Uh-huh. And he finds the dogs eat, I think he said, no meat, no detectable meat at all, or wow. certainly very, very little meat.
2: Wow.
1: Uh, I mean, the dogs don't, I mean, we don't want to over romanticize this. The dogs are pretty darn thin.
0: Right. Yeah, you can they're see not, that in not the photos. Fat, sure. They're
1: not fat, happy dogs. I'm sure nobody you? is.
0: Nobody well, is. Well, that's
1: right. Every, <laughs> everybody is, is pretty thin. Yeah. I mean, they're just about on the right side. I think this is true of the dogs, too, that they're just about just about on the on the good side of being healthy, but they're close. Yeah. They're close to the edge. Yeah, it, I found it very interesting. As I was going down this Cocoa River for two days to get to the Mayangna people, you go through the settlements of another group of native people called the Mosquito People, who do not hunt with their dogs and they have dogs all around their camps, and those dogs looked desperately thin.
2: Mm. They were
1: very mangy. They looked desperately thin. Now, Mm. I didn't stop and spend time talking to those people about Mm. their dogs, but so far as I could see, for the mosquito people, the dogs are just vermin that scavenge on their trash, Mm -hmm. and they have no interest in them. I doubt that they give them names. And it was very interesting to turn into this tributary river and reached the Mayangna people who hunt with the dogs. Yeah. And their dogs were still thin, but they were not desperately thin, and they were not mangy. And the people let the dogs into their homes,
2: okay. into
1: their bedrooms. And there was one particular dog that I saw several times that slept underneath the stove. They, they make their cooking stove is a wooden platform raised off the ground. And, obviously, to sleep underneath it would have to be the number one top place to catch the best scrap. Right. And this family's dog was allowed to, this dog was called Tarzan. And Tarzan was allowed to sleep under the stove. And I'm sure the mosquito people were not tolerating dogs in the same way.
0: Yeah, probably not. Well, uh, we're going to take a break again and we'll be back okay. with more conversation with Dr. Clive Wynn, one of the featured presenters at the Sparks International Conference. You can find out more about this conference coming up in just less than 2 weeks now, caninescience.info. I'll be there. I can't wait. Hope to see you there as well. We'll be back in just a few minutes with the Dog Show with Julie Forbes. Natural Pet Pantry is Seattle's original source for wholesome dog and cat meals, offering eight different proteins to accommodate your pet's dietary needs. Made locally using all U.S. sourced ingredients, their freshly ground stews, raw or cooked, can be purchased from their Burian shop, most independent pet supply stores, or delivered right to your home. Natural Pet Pantry will even work with your vet to custom blend a prescription diet for your pet's unique needs. Go to naturalpetpantry.com for more information. Natural Pet Pantry, it just makes sense.
3: There's an exciting new astrology hour, Tuesdays at 5 p.m. with Deborah Silverman. Deborah's unique blend of psychology and astrology Turns planetary language into plain English. Join us for an interactive hour that's guaranteed to give you personal insights in a fun and entertaining way. Tune in to Deborah Silverman Live. Whatever your life question, marriage, job, family, relocation, or just curiosity, call for a live reading Tuesdays at 5 p.m. and visit Deborah's website at DeborahSilvermanAstrology.com.
0: Hi, I'm Martha Childress with the Natural Choice Network. Join us every Tuesday at 12.30 p.m. right here on Alternative Talk 1150. Each week, we invite leaders from our sustainable community to share their unique visions and valuable insights. You'll learn great tools to make your life greener, healthier, and more sustainable for generations to come. Thank you for making the natural choice. That's the Natural Choice Network every Tuesday at 12.30 p.m. Please join us. Do you have an injury, old or new, that won't heal? Are you fighting a cold or illness you can't kick? Do you feel like you've tried everything and are still struggling to find wellness and balance in your physical health? Have you been unimpressed with acupuncture in the past? For over a decade, Robert Meduzia has been making a difference for people who thought they had exhausted their options. Don't settle for pain and illness. Call 425 828 6190. That's 425 828 6190. Again, 425 828 6190. The Acupuncture and Sports Clinic of Kirkland. Heal faster, play longer.
3: Open your ears, open your heart, open your mind. Alternative Talk, 11 right a.m.
0: Welcome back to The Dog Show with Julie Forbes, and we are back with Dr. Clive Wynn. I just want to acknowledge one of our partners of the show, The Natural Pet Pantry. They make cooked and raw food diets for dogs and cats. You can find them online at naturalpetpantry.com. Excellent food. Uh, It's what I feed my dogs and what I recommend to my clients and friends, naturalpetpantry.com. So uh, Dr. Clive Wynn is one of the featured presenters at the Sparks International Conference, which is coming up just in about a week and a half. You can still register. It's in Redmond, Washington. There are people coming from all over the country and actually all over the world to see these great speakers. Mark Beckoff, Ray Coppinger, Michael Fox, Alexander Horowitz, Catherine Lord, Adam McCloskey, Monique Udell, and of course, Dr. Clive Wynn, who we have back with us today on the show we've been talking about um, a lot about, uh, well, in the first segment about how dogs think and how that compares to wolves, how they learn. Um, If you've missed any part of this interview or any of our shows, you can find them archived on our website, dogradioshow.com, and on iTunes as a free audio podcast. And we want to come back to uh, the origin of dogs. We were talking during the break about how fascinating it is to think about uh, you know wh- what happened. What were those first, you know, few, several, ten generations, where it really did start to go in the into in the direction of domestication? And you have some very educated thoughts on this matter, and some experience. And you talked about um, uh, a trip to Israel that you took that kind of helped you in your sort of quest for this these answers.
1: Yeah, well, Julie, I've been. I've been puzzling over the origins of dogs for some time now. I mean, I I find it really curious that we don't know. I mean, we were there. I mean, not you and I, obviously, but humans were there. Humans were there when dogs came into existence. You'd think somebody would have kept a record. I mean, people have been painting the animals around them, like on the caves in the south of France and the north of Spain. There are these paintings. and the People painted hundreds of different species of animals over 20,000 years ago. And yet, nowhere a dog. You think there would be, you, there would be some kind of a record. The oldest picture of a dog is only six thousand years old, in northern in northern Africa, in Algeria. So, um, so I went to. I was telling you about Nicaragua and how I was interested to see whether dogs could have arisen as hunters' helpers. And although that the hunt with the dog really works. It cannot be the origin of the dog because you need to have agricultural inputs
2: mm-hmm. to be able
1: to make it work. Mm-hmm. And the other thing is it cannot be the origin of the dog because you need a dog to make it work. You cannot go hunting right. with wolves.
0: Because the wolf is hunting and, for itself.
1: The wolf is hunting for itself. Right. and she, So I, had a, I went to Israel last year. And and I had a really, uh, my very last morning in Israel was tremendously informative in this way. So in Israel, they have the last remaining populations of the small wolf that most likely was, in fact, the parent of the dog. So none of the dogs in the world are descended from the big wolves of North America. That's definitively known from the genetics. Mm. But there are no dogs Even the dogs that were in North America before Columbus came here, Mm -hmm. those dogs were not descended from North American wolves. Dogs are not descended from the big wolves of cold climates. They're, in fact, descended from the small wolves that live in warm climates. I think probably most of the evidence points towards the Middle East. There's also some possibility that it could have been southern China. But either way, it was these small wolves. And so I went to Israel last year because I wanted to see these wolves for myself. I wanted to, I knew that they were more doggy size. They're about the size of a mid-sized breed of dog, like a Labrador, Golden Retriever, something like that. And and nobody has ever studied their behavior. And I wasn't going to be able to study their behavior in a week, but I thought if I met some, I might be able to form an opinion. You know, are they like somewhat more doggy than the wolves that I know here in North America? And, uh, so I, so I, I saw some of these wolves, uh, but they were all zoo animals and it wasn't easy to gain my sense of them. And on the very last morning in Israel, I, I had been given a tip the day before by an old guy in a kibbutz right on the Syrian border in the far North of Israel, a guy who was, who shared my interest in wolves and dogs. And he put in a phone call to a filmmaker at another kibbutz right by the Sea of Galilee, um, Yosha, Af- oh, I've forgotten the guy's name, but the but the Kabilt is called Afakim. And this filmmaker, his production company is called Afakim Productions. And he had once made a documentary about wolves. And in order to get better close-up shots, he had hand-reared some wolf pups, some Arab wolf pups. And they had actually wanted to make a film about the origins of dogs, a documentary film about the origins of dogs. And um, they had made a four-minute short as a way of trying to drum up the financing to make a full-length feature documentary. They never actually made the feature documentary, but he showed me the four-minute short that they made. And it showed an actor in a loincloth shooting an arrow and bringing down a gazelle, and then his pet wolves run after and kill the gazelle for him. And by the time he's caught up, the gazelle is dead and the actor in the loincloth picks up the animal and carries it home.
2: Mm. And
1: I was astonished by this because all I have ever known about wolf behavior said, even if you've hand reared the wolf, it's never going to share its dinner with you. You know, one of the wolf Park where I, where I work in Indiana has many rules about getting close to the wolves. And one of the wolves is you never touch their food. You can't go messing with the wolf's food. A lot of dogs, of course, don't like people messing with their food. Mm -hmm. So anyway, so I was astonished in this video. And I said to the guy, this is amazing. So they let you share the food. You can just, you know, you can shoot a gazelle. They they bring it down. They'll happily let you carry it away. And he said, oh, no. Oh, no. Actually, the actor got quite badly bitten. (laughs) So in making this four-minute short movie, purporting to show us how dogs could have arisen as hunters' helpers, <laughs> he was actually in the process of making that short movie, proving that this couldn't be oh, how it was that's done. terrible. And actually, <laughs> when I, the man I was talking to was the producer-director, mm-hmm. and it wasn't he who had hand-reared the wolves. It was his buddy and, and collaborator, the cameraman, who'd actually reared the wolves. And the producer-director admitted to me that he was, in fact, absolutely terrified of these animals. He'd been a paratrooper in two of Israel's wars with its neighbors. I've always thought being a paratrooper would be the most frightening form of soldier you could possibly be. But he said he was scared of nothing but these wolves, and that whenever they were actually filming anything to do with the wolves, he would stay in his car and just roll down the window two inches and shout out directions. Interesting. But at the same time, he said to me that these hand-reared wolves were very gentle to the cameraman, who was their master, who'd reared them, and the cameraman's family. And I really wanted to talk to the cameraman, but he was terribly busy. So I only got to meet him very briefly, and I said, look, I know you're terribly busy. I I just need to ask you just one question. And that is, your, your friend here tells me that although he was terrified of your wolves, that they were actually perfectly gentle and tractable for you. I said, is that right? And he didn't answer me in words. He just rolled up his right shirt sleeve. And his whole forearm was one massive scar where he'd obviously had a terrible bawling. So, what that says is that when we see what you can do with a dog, we cannot deduce from that that that's how the dog came into existence. So, you can go hunting with a dog, but you couldn't go hunting with a wolf. So, you couldn't create the dog by taking wolves hunting with you. Because the wolf, it would eat, if it didn't kill you, it would eat your children. And when you think about the lives that we live today, where we have collars and leashes and fences and walls and doors and roofs, the original people had none of those things. Hunter-gatherers have none of those things. And so if we can barely keep a hand-reared wolf under control today, the chances that our ancestors did this Ten, twenty thousand 20,000 years ago, are just zilch. There is just no way it could be done. People do adopt the, the young of wild animals, and our ancestors may well have adopted the young of wild animals, young of wild wolves, you know, maybe they stole a pup. They might have done that, because we know that people do that kind of thing. But once it reached some level of maturity, where it began to nip the babies that were playing around the camp, I'm sorry, but the people would just take a big stone and they would smash its head in, yeah, because if you don't have all the all the more humane options for controlling an animal's behavior that we have today, you just cannot risk having your babies killed by an animal, so you would kill the
0: animal, yeah, something that I've noticed working so fast forward to today, yeah, uh, that I've noticed working with my clients with their pet dogs and I do in-home lessons. So I go to people's homes all over uh Puget Sound area and visit with uh-huh. them. And one of the things that is a, one of the most common sources of a behavioral challenge for people, but a conflict for people consistently is people coming to the door. People coming to the door, strangers coming to the door, the dog barks at the door, or the dog charges at the door and jumps on the person who's trying to come in, all this sort of thing. So the dog is, the people experience the dog as being unmanageable around new people coming into the territory. But in 12 years of doing this, I have never had somebody tell me that they don't want their dog to bark at the door initially to let them know that somebody's standing at their door. Yeah. And that, to me, is is a powerful uh, factor of the benefit to us of having dogs live with us. And I know from my own experience, I feel much more secure in my house with four dogs in it than I would if I was alone.
1: Well, um, uh, I'm sure, you know, I'm, I'm completely sure you're right in what you say matches my own experience. But as I was saying, we have to be careful how we extrapolate from what we can do with a dog today back to how a dog might have arisen. One curious thing about dogs is that they bark. Wolves almost never bark. Um, uh, Not all breeds of dog bark, of course, but barking is a very doggy thing and it's not really present uh, or barely present in wolves. Uh, There are there's a, I mean, barking is one of those mysteries about dogs. It's astonishing there can be so many mysteries about such a common animal, but the bark is really quite a mystery. Why do dogs bark so much? Uh, why do wolves bark so little? Ray Coppinger's belief is that barking is what is called in biology a mobbing call. So a mobbing call is a sound that an animal emits when it feels threatened and unable to cope with the threat. And so it gives out this mobbing call to attract the attention of others of its kind to help it see the threat off, and that would make sense in the case of dogs compared to wolves, because wolves would seldom need to give a call like that because they are themselves the larger, usually the largest predator in their
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, in their neighborhood. They're unlikely to meet anything that's a dangerous threat to them, uh, and if they do. They can usually retreat. Uh, You compare that to the dog, which is punier than a lot of the other animals that it meets, meaning largely us. We can usually do harm to a dog. And we put dogs in situations where they're commonly trapped, so they cannot so easily just retreat. Mm -hmm. So uh, that at least is a plausible hypothesis for the origin of barking. Then as to whether barking played a role in our ancestors' lives with dogs, I must say I thought that was quite plausible until I had to spend a night in this mosquito village on the way to the Mayungna people when we were going along the Cocoa River and you couldn't get to sleep. The dogs were barking all night, (laughs) and any possible useful alarm function to one Mm. household was surely canceled out by the fact that somebody's dog barked all the time. Mm. And once one dog barked, all the dogs of the village would bark. So I I would be absolutely fascinated to um, find a collaborator and the resources to go back out to that mosquito village And ask the people what they make of the dogs, because I wouldn't be surprised if they don't see the dogs as just nothing but a nuisance, but that they have no way of getting rid of them. Mm. Because I certainly couldn't see any useful function they served.
0: Hmm. Well, it's so interesting. There's so many different possibilities. Like you said, we don't know. Um, And if not barking, I mean, wolves are vocal, so they vocalize. So maybe not barking, but making sounds. I mean, who knows like you said, this is part of what you and others are trying to uncover in your research is to really understand the origin of dogs and how they came to be. And, and uh, so interesting to think, especially because of who they are for us today. Um, so it's I just really am looking forward to hearing you speak um, and the others in about a week and a half just outside of yeah. Seattle. And I uh, really appreciate your time today, uh, sharing your experience and ideas with my listeners. And it's just been a really, really interesting, thought provoking conversation. So thank you so much.
1: Well, thank you, Julie. I really enjoyed myself. I'm Good. looking forward to this Sparks thing, too.
0: Me, too. I'll look forward to meeting you in person then.
1: Yeah, that'll be great.
0: Okay. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be back in just a few minutes with some announcements. You're listening to The Dog Show with Julie Forbes on Alternative Talk 1150. Oh,
4: wish your dog didn't hate going to the vet wish you were welcomed by a team who cared jet city animal clinic is an enjoyable respite from the same old thing Dr. Anderson and her team have created a full-service facility that combines veterinary expertise with a comfortable style. Jet City Animal Clinic is located in Seattle's Capitol Hill neighborhood on 12th Avenue across from Seattle U. Bring your crazy questions, odd ideas, and alternative thinking. Jet City Animal Clinic will work with you to keep your furry family members healthy and happy. Traditionally educated with an open mind, Call us at 206-329-0253 or email info at JetCity dot com to make an appointment. Jet City Animal Clinic, a unique approach to the health care of your urban pet, a local family practice. JetCityAnimalClinic.com Animal dot com. As God is my
2: witness.
3: I thought
4: turkeys could fly.
3: Hi, I'm Adam. And I'm Fred. And we're talking turkey. Every Friday at 4 on Alternative Talk, 1150 AM. Talking Turkey Radio, the real dirt on everything edible, from turkeys to really big turkeys. Fridays at 4 on KKNW, 1150 AM in Seattle and the Greater Pungent Sound. For more information, visit TalkinTurkeyRadio.com.
0: This is Julie Forbes, dog training, behavior, and nutrition specialist and owner of Sensitive Dog, thoughtful guidance for you and your dog. If your dog needs basic obedience training, a behavior evaluation, or food consultation, I can help you. Call me at 206-372-7399 or visit my website, www.sensitivedog.com. I teach group obedience classes, in-home lessons, and evaluations, and a two-week intensive training program called Higher Education. Again, I'm Julie Forbes, Seattle's dog behavior training and nutrition specialist www.sensitivedog.com
3: Coming the weekend of June 28th through the 30th, it's the Society for Promotion of Applied Research in Canine Science
0: Conference. It's amazing. So amazing. This incredible conference coming up locally in Redmond. End of June. I'm just blown away by all of these people who are going to be here. Mark Beckhoff, Michael Fox, Clive Wynn Adam McCloshy, Ray Coppinger, Alexander Horowitz, etc. These incredible authors and scientists are all coming together in redmond and we have the opportunity to go and participate in this caninescience.info i'll post a link to that on our homepage, page dogradioshow.com this is a really like maybe not once in a lifetime but the first opportunity in this area ever so super exciting
3: go to caninescience.info for more information and to register now alternative to what Alternative to everything else out there on the radio, Alternative Talk, 1150 a.m.
2: Dogs and Irish dogs. And Irish
0: dogs. Welcome back to The Dog Show with Julie Forbes. Uh, this Sparks conference that's coming up um, at the end of June, it's the 28th, 29th, and 30th. Uh, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday in Redmond um, has been well. It's so I'm so excited for the event. But one of the perks for me and for dog show listeners is that if it's sparked no pun intended um, the series of interviews with with the presenters. Some of the presenters we haven't had uh, won't have the opportunity to talk with everybody who's presenting. But we've I've had the opportunity to talk with. Uh, a few so far and one more next week. We'll be talking with Alexandra Horowitz, who is one of the speakers and um, she's the author of a book called inside of a dog or inside a dog. Um, And uh, really look forward to that. They have all been such great interviews. I mean, the, the caliber of these presenters is just amazing, which is why I'm so excited for the event. So, again, it's the website is caninescience.info. And uh, you can go onto the website. You can find out more detail about who's speaking, what each presenter will be speaking about, and the dates, and also, of course, to register and get yourself tickets. Um, It's not too late to do that. I can't wait. This is unlike anything that has ever come uh, into the area, and it's the first... um, so I don't know that there's been anything like it in the country and the fact that it's in Redmond is really quite the opportunity. It's going to be amazing and I really look forward to meeting a lot of these people in person. Um, I have a couple of other announcements in addition to the Sparks Conference. So I'm on the board of directors for the um, AHELP project, which is animal hospice. End of life and palliative care. And it's the, uh, it's an organization surrounding um, helping people at the end of life with their pets, uh, caring for their pets, um, you know, pets who are going through cancer, helping people make the decision about when to euthanize, all sorts of stuff. Uh, anyway, uh, spiritsintransition.org. I'll post um, post a link on our website. Thanks so much for listening to the Dog Show with Julie Forbes on Alternative Talk AM 1150.